A new book reveals how to recognize and defeat the evil of communism and other totalitarian regimes like Putin's Russia. The Triumph of Good, Cain, Abel, and the End of Marxism, with commentary by the author, Thomas Cromwell. Chapter 2. In the Beginning. Two Opposing Views of the Origin and Purpose of Humankind. The origin of human beings is an issue that divides people into two often hostile camps. On the one side are those who believe that we humans were created by a transcendent divine being whose nature is embedded in our own core being. On this side you find religion-based philosophies and the many cultural beliefs and institutions they have given rise to, including the belief that all goodness, truth and beauty flow from our Creator. On the other side are those who believe that we humans evolved from animals and that the essence of human nature is found in instinctive and intellectual traits and behaviors that have evolved from more primitive life forms. On this side you find atheism and materialist philosophies that look to human intelligence and organization for goodness, truth and beauty. It is easy to point to inadequacies on both sides. After all, Neither would claim that the people and institutions on their side have reached a state of perfection. However, the characteristics, histories and trajectories of the two sides are radically different. Thus, for example, you can fault the religion of Judaism for the excesses of the Maccabees, Christianity for the predations of the Crusades, and Islam for Muhammad's ruthless beheading of Jews in Medina. But these atrocities do not compare in the extent of their evil, with the murder of millions by the Nazis, or tens of millions by the Soviet Union and Communist China. Furthermore, religion itself does not approve of cruelty to others and censors selfish and malicious behavior, based on the belief that all people are created in the image of the divine and therefore deserve respect. In contrast, the brutality of Nazism and Communism is prescribed by their ideologies, and historically the perpetrators of their violent and cruel revolutions and rulers of their brutal regimes have been rewarded with positions of power and influence. Our purpose here then is twofold, to examine the foundational issues that divide spiritual from materialist views of life, and then in particular to identify basic elements in Marxism that make it a theory antagonistic to a theistic belief in the origin and nature of humankind. New section. The divine purpose and nature of creation. It is a matter of logic that nothing is created by itself and that therefore we did not create ourselves. Indeed, creation is the manifestation of purpose in new existence. All creation, including humankind, has come into being with its purpose already established. It does not determine its own purpose. Thus, in order to understand our purpose for existence, we need to understand the purpose for which we were created. Having emerged from a state of gross ignorance, our understanding has unfolded only very slowly over centuries as enlightened individuals and groups 
have gained ever more knowledge of human nature and purpose. Initially, the knowledge acquired was almost exclusively of a spiritual and religious nature. However, with the rise of basic science in Greece during the centuries before Jesus appeared, and then its full flowering in the wake of the Renaissance, our overall knowledge of the universe has increased exponentially. This explosion of knowledge gives us unprecedented power to influence the world around us, for good or evil, which makes it all the more important for us to understand our true, original purpose, so that we can work to fulfill it by cultivating good and eliminating evil. The most basic attribute of human nature is the desire for happiness. This is a driving force of life, from an infant's pursuit of its mother's milk to an adult's pursuit of love, wealth, and power. Its universal manifestation in human nature tells us that happiness is the purpose for our existence, and hence the purpose for which we were created. This is fully consistent with a Creator who is loving and good. It also explains the pleasure we experience in love and in the beauty of creation, with its infinite reflections of divine purpose in the intricate designs and processes that make life possible. New section, the harmonious duality of creator and creation. How then do we fulfill our God-given purpose? In this book, we contend that the human purpose to experience joy is accomplished when we establish harmonious relationships with our creator, with other people and with nature. This is achievable because all of nature is designed with complementary characteristics whose interactions are the basis for life. In simple terms, nature is composed of subject-object elements that engage in give-and-take action to exist and grow. These elements form harmonious dualities such as male and female animals, stamens and pistols, and positivity and negativity in subatomic particles. Life requires the presence of these dual elements and both subject and object fulfill their purpose through harmonious give and take with each other. Please note, this is not a duality of good and evil. Evil is antithetical to good, the perversion and nemesis of what is good. It can never be reconciled with good. It must be eliminated. That harmonious dualities are the basis for life implies that our Creator is likewise a being of dual characteristics, albeit in original, absolute, and perfectly complementary form. As a central creative and organizing force of the universe, God made the whole creation in the image of divine nature and maintains order through laws that establish the order and proper behavior of its myriad elements. Human beings are the pinnacle of creation and most fully embody the divine nature. They are unlike the rest of creation in that they are endowed with an eternal spiritual being as well as a mortal physical being. This enables them to both enjoy an intimate relationship with the Creator and to exercise stewardship over nature. They mediate between the spiritual world and the Creator and the physical world of the rest of creation. New section, the physical world and spiritual world. The existence of an eternal human spirit points to the existence of an invisible spiritual world that complements and completes the physical world and is the eternal home for human spirits. 
The spread is the internal embodiment of the Creator's dual nature. It is composed of both spiritual mind or soul and spiritual body. The eternal human spirit and mortal human body are a more fundamental aspect of duality than male and female attributes. In other words, we are spirit and body first and man or woman second. In this view, God is a source of both masculinity and femininity, as well as both invisible causal and visible resultant elements in the creation. A human being grows through the interaction between spiritual and physical, a relationship in which the physical plays a limited yet vital role in enabling an individual to reach maturity and to reproduce. Eventually, the body dies and the spirit continues its eternal existence in the spiritual world. The existence of this invisible spiritual world is experienced in the life of every person, although most people never identify these experiences as such. Seeming coincidences, intuitions, flashes of insight, dreams, visions, moments of religious ecstasy and out-of-body experiences all derive from our contact with the intangible world. Many scientists from Descartes and Mendeleev to Einstein have spoken of this invisible influence in their lives and work. In 1927, Einstein explained his view, quote, try and penetrate with our limited means the secrets of nature, and you will find that behind all the discernible concatenations, there remains something subtle, intangible, and inexplicable. Veneration for this force beyond anything that we can comprehend is my religion. To that extent, I am, in point of fact, religious." End of quote. Another interesting perspective on the existence of an invisible causal world is provided by Anthony Flew, a lifelong atheist philosopher who late in life reversed his position on God. I quote, I now believe that the universe was brought into existence by an infinite intelligence. I believe that this universe's intricate laws manifest what scientists have called the mind of God. I believe that life and reproduction originate in a divine source. Why do I believe this, given that I expounded and defended atheism for more than half a century? The short answer is this. This is the world picture as I see it that has emerged from modern science. Science spotlights three dimensions of nature that point to God. The first is the fact that nature obeys laws. The second is the dimension of life, of intelligently organized and purpose-driven beings which arose from matter. The third is the very existence of nature. But it is not science alone that has guided me. I have also been helped by a renewed study of the classical philosophical arguments." End quote. New section, the materialist view of existence. For the atheist and materialist, there is no reason to believe in the existence of a universal desire for happiness, let alone a divine design that enables human beings to achieve happiness. For them, the very existence of life and the characteristics of human beings and other creatures are nothing more than products of evolutionary forces governed by laws which have themselves emerged, magically, from the chaos of the Big Bang. They assume that if they search long and hard enough, 
they will eventually discover the secret of life in the physical world, either on planet Earth or elsewhere. But they won't succeed. Life cannot come from non-life. It can only come from life, whose origin is spiritual, not physical. As a theory of existence, materialism is much younger than religion. It evolved in recent centuries after science began to break free from religious dogmas in the Renaissance, which began in the 14th century. From that time, science has grown to become the most trusted form of knowledge, while in increasingly secular societies, religion has been relegated to the realm of untrustworthy belief, tradition, and superstition. Science is predicated on the ability to prove theories through experimentation and observation, based on the assumption that there are immutable laws that govern the universe. Materialist philosophies typically claim science as the basis for their credibility, but what they can't explain are the intangible but very real phenomena of emotion, such as love, hate, and empathy, and of intellect, such as reason, memory, and imagination. These, as well as the even more mysterious spiritual phenomena of life, are said by materialists to be functions of the human brain and natural features of the physical world. Thus materialists believe in an arbitrary world, devoid of transcendent purpose and absolutes, moral or otherwise. Their world offers no enduring hope or happiness. A new section, Dialectical Materialism. The most influential materialist theories are Marxism and its neo-Marxist offshoots in the critical theories of the Frankfurt School and postmodernism. We describe the genesis and main features of Marxism in chapter 10 and its offshoots in chapters 14 through 16. However, at this point, it will be helpful to briefly introduce the Marxist concept of what Stalin called dialectical materialism. According to this theory, all beings are composed of contradictory elements which naturally enter into conflict with each other as part of a process whereby the original entity, the thesis, is challenged by its antithesis. Out of this struggle emerges the antithesis of the antithesis, or the negation of the negation, which is called the synthesis. This synthesis is a new thesis that is also imperfect and so contains within itself conflicting elements that will inevitably engage in a new round of dialectical struggle. Marx and Engels believed that this dialectical process explained everything from natural evolution to human history. More importantly, it justified violent revolution by aggrieved classes against their rulers. Dialectical materialism is essentially the materialist theory used to deconstruct language and social institutions in critical theories. These conflict-based theories of nature are fundamentally at odds with the view that all creation embodies harmonious elements derived from the Creator, as we have described above. As we will show, dialectical materialism and critical theories are themselves relatively recent constructs that rationalize what are in fact age-old characteristics of what we call fallen nature, that is, of humankind in a state of alienation from God. Dialectical materialism and critical theories are not scientifically sound explanations of nature 
or of human beings as originally created. As such, they only serve to systematize and strengthen rebellion against the divine and destruction of the beauty of creation. New section. Consequences of Atheistic Ideology Marxism does not recognize the existence of an eternal human spirit, believing spiritual phenomena to be a function of the physical human being, mind and body. This view is also consistent with the postmodernist idea that human beliefs and experiences are a function of societal influences. These materialist views are dehumanizing since they deny the spiritual core of our human nature and existence. They also excuse the brutalization of people in the name of ideological agendas that see men and women as nothing more than highly evolved animals. The lack of a moral compass based on an understanding of the eternal value of humankind is a common feature of totalitarian regimes and is directly responsible for the cruel treatment inflicted on tens of millions of victims by Hitler, Lenin, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot and other dictators who justified their brutality with materialist ideologies. A new section, the complementary nature of religion and science. For most of human existence, knowledge of the world and human existence was guided by observations that were filtered through religious beliefs and superstitions. This began to change when, in the centuries preceding the Christian era, ancient Greece gave birth to great thinkers, such as Pythagoras, Erastothenes, and Aristarchus, who studied the world around them with intense curiosity. They discovered basic laws of nature, including the fact that the earth is round, not flat, and that it circles the sun, not vice versa. At the same time, Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato developed methods of intellectual inquiry based on reason and deduction, planting the seeds of science-based civilization. These ideas would bear fruit some two millennia later, when in the 16th century, Nicolaus Copernicus, a Polish cleric, mathematician and astronomer, also argued that the Earth circled the Sun. He was followed by Galileo, who was tried for heresy by the Catholic Church. By this time, the Renaissance was underway, and the movement to explore the universe free from the constraints of religious dogma now led to the development of modern science, based on observation, reason, and experimentation. In just a few centuries, science would emerge as the most trusted field of knowledge. In time, an overconfidence in science will cause many, especially materialist thinkers, to unwisely put all their trust in it, even though science has been unable to answer the deeper questions of life. Marx and Engels wanted a complete divorce between religion and science. Lenin explained the Marxist antipathy to religion in his book Religion. He said, Atheism is a natural and inseparable part of Marxism, of the theory and practice of scientific socialism. End quote. In the attitude of the Workers' Party to religion, Lenin elaborated, and I quote, quote Religion is the opium of the people. This saying of Marx is the cornerstone of the entire ideology of Marxism about religion. All modern religions and churches, all and every kind of religious organizations, are always considered by Marxism 
as the origins of bourgeois reaction, used for the protection of the exploitation and the stupefaction of the working class." End quote. Yet the absolutist rejection of religion by Marxism makes no more sense than religion's earlier absolutist rejection of science. Religion and science should not be seen as antithetical, but as fundamentally compatible and complementary. They both seek to understand the universe, which is a single existence, endowed with its creator's harmonious characteristics and single purpose. In maturity, human beings assume the responsibility of co-creators with God, a responsibility they can fulfill by developing the internal qualities necessary to exercise a wise dominion and stewardship over the internal, spiritual world of religious belief and knowledge, as well as the external, physical world of science and technology. Both the internal and external dimensions of our universe play vital roles in our existence. Albert Einstein wrote about the complementarity of religion and science. Here is one of his statements, and I quote, Now, even though the realms of religion and science in themselves are clearly marked off from each other, nevertheless, there exist between the two strong reciprocal relationships and dependencies. Though religion may be that which determines the goal, it has nevertheless learned from science in the broadest sense, what means will contribute to the attainment of the goals it has set up. But science can only be created by those who are thoroughly imbued with the aspiration towards truth and understanding. This source of feeling, however, springs from the sphere of religion. To this there also belongs the faith in the possibility that the regulations valid for the world of existence are rational, that is, comprehensible to reason. I cannot conceive of a genuine scientist without that profound faith. The situation may be expressed by an image. Science without religion is lame. Religion without science is blind." End quote. There is an area within science that is exploring human experiences that cannot be explained as functions of a physical brain namely those that relate to existence beyond the realm of the physical world. Through studying near-death experiences and other phenomena of human life that point to aspects of the mind that cannot be a function of physical existence and the human brain, scientists are challenging the materialism, or physicalism as it is now more commonly called, that had been considered an axiomatic foundation of scientific knowledge. Two excellent books on this area of research that are respectively co-written and co-edited by Edward Kelly of the University of Virginia are included in the bibliography. Irreducible Mind, Toward a Psychology for the 21st Century, that's the first book, and Beyond Physicalism, Towards Reconciliation of Science and Spirituality. A new section, Human Growth to Maturity. The human thirst for perfection, whether spiritual or physical, implies a possibility of its achievement. Whether we look back to the innocence of Eden before the fall, or forward to paradise or heaven, we sense that the current state of human imperfection does not reflect our original purpose. In our view, 
the biblical story of Adam and Eve succumbing to temptation implies that they were not yet spiritually and mentally mature at the time of the fall. This leaves us with the obvious question, what would have likely happened if they had been obedient to God? In other words, what was their original, unfulfilled purpose? This is not merely a matter for academic speculation. It is our understanding that their existence itself represented the final stage of God's creative work, implying that we share with them an ultimate purpose and destiny. Therefore, determining exactly how they failed is extremely important for us, who inherited their nature and are continuously confronted with the choices between good and evil. A new section, Perfecting Love Through Three Blessings. Again, the Bible provides an answer. Human beings are endowed with a purpose in the form of three blessings. Adam and Eve were told, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves upon the earth." End quotes. These blessings encompass the three main axes of human life, our vertical relationship with the parental creator, our horizontal relationships with other people, especially family, and our stewardship of nature. By perfecting the three blessings, we become true objects of divine love, cultivating within ourselves a heart of love that enables us to understand and respond to our Creator's heart and to become co-creators with God. The first blessing is foundational. It recognizes the fact of our creation as an embodiment of God's own attributes, which makes us co-creators with a capacity to love and reason. Unlike any other creature, we have free will, which is necessary for love, and which in turn is the basis for our relationships with our Creator, with other people, and with nature. To be fruitful is to grow to maturity in love by exercising our free will responsibly. The second blessing is the fulfillment of loving human relationships. Men and women reach maturity by learning to reciprocate the love they receive from their parents and then loving their siblings and others as brothers and sisters. On this foundation, they can enter into conjugal relationships and produce and raise children of their own. The third blessing is extending mature love beyond other people to the rest of nature in the form of wise stewardship. A new section, free will and personal responsibility. Human beings are endowed with free will, which enables us to choose between obedience and disobedience, good and evil. This uniquely human attribute is the basis for love, which by its nature must be freely given. It cannot be coerced. Thus fulfilling the three blessings is conditioned on us exercising our free will responsibly in accordance with divine purpose. Conversely, failing to fulfill our responsibility condemns us to a life of alienation from the Creator that is characterized by broken relationships and suffering. In the next chapter, we will put forward an explanation for the original reasons for this alienation. But at this point, it is worth noting that the sadness and suffering we experience in life and see all around us are not what was originally intended for the creation by our Creator. 
We are living in a world that is very distant from the ideal we have described above, a world in which the three blessings remain unfulfilled. Suffice it to say that the tragedy of human alienation occurred because of failures by our first ancestors to exercise their free will wisely. Reversing their failures through the thoughtful exercise of free will became the central purpose of providential history and remains the primary goal of restoration today. We can see then that the fulfillment of our Creator's purpose from the original creation through the providence to restore fallen humanity is dependent upon we human beings fulfilling our God-given responsibilities as co-creators. This is an unchanging law. It should be taught by all religions and is taught by many. In the Bible, personal responsibility is first established in instructions given to the first people created, with a warning that disobedience will mean death. It was also the central tenet of the first laws revealed to the Israelites, the Mosaic Law, which clearly links the response of the Israelites to divine instructions with the outcomes they can expect. If they are obedient, they will be blessed. If disobedient, they will be cursed. This message is repeated to them by Moses again and again. For example, he gave this warning from God to the Israelites before they entered the promised land. And I quote, See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today, by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today, that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. End quote. A new section. The importance of marriage and the family. As seen from the three blessings described above, the family is the most important human institution. Through it, children grow in understanding and love, becoming good individuals, siblings, and parents. Good societies and nations are built on good families, and inversely, broken families create dysfunctional societies of violence and crime. This underscores the importance and sanctity of marriage between a man and a woman and ultimately elevates us to the status of wise co-creators with God. Tellingly, Marx and Engels called for the abolition of the family. In the Communist Manifesto they wrote, Abolition of the family. Even the most radical people flare up at this infamous proposal of the Communists. 
On what foundation is the present family, the bourgeois family, based? On capital, on private gain. In its completely developed form, this family exists only among the bourgeoisie. End quote. The twisted view that families are only a feature of oppressive classes reveals just how stilted and out of touch with science Marx and Engels were. The communist war against the family is an integral element of the war against God because good families are the place where love of God and other people is best nurtured. This pernicious Marxist teaching has remained a central part of all subsequent neo-Marxist ideology. It is responsible for the wholesale destruction of families in socialist and communist countries, as well as widespread social dislocation and human misery caused by leftist movements to this day. In its atheism and belief that families must be destroyed, Marxism is diametrically opposed to the divine design for creation, but perfectly in line with the behavior of Lucifer or Satan, who destroyed God's original family, as we will explain in the next chapter. More than any of its economic or political theories, the core anti-family beliefs of Marxism make it the greatest threat to a world of enduring love, justice and peace. Like Rousseau before him, Marx rebelled against the discipline of obedience to a higher authority. Believing in a godless world, he imagined that he himself could play God. This mentality would become a characteristic of leftist intellectuals, and especially those identified with the neo-Marxism of the Frankfurt School and postmodernism. As Paul Johnson describes so well in his book, Intellectuals, the typical thinker of the left suffers from massive egoism and from a perch far above the masses, prescribes solutions for the world's problems that never work when applied. Their love for abstract values of peace and justice never translates into caring for the individuals in their lives, and most are responsible for terrible treatment of family members and friends. All too often, their anti-religious and anti-family theories serve as an excuse for their own immoral behavior. The broader result is, however, that they provide an ideological basis for society-wide abandonment of morality, as witnessed both in the brutal treatment of individuals by totalitarian regimes and in the collapse of moral standards in industrialized countries. In this book, we advocate for the strengthening of traditional family values as the basis for rejecting the prescriptions of the left and reversing civilizational decline. As we will explain in detail, we believe that the attitudes and theories of the left have deep roots in the origin of evil itself, and that divine providence is aimed at reversing their influence and restoring godly values to the world. New section. We hold the key to our own future. In the introduction, we pointed out that good and evil cannot coexist. In this chapter, we have shown that because of free will, we are able to choose between good and evil. Our fulfillment of the three blessings, then, is determined by the moral choices we make. It's up to us to marshal our free will to accomplish our God-given purpose. 
This fact explains the paradox of a loving and omnipotent creator existing while humanity remains rife with ungodly ideas and behavior. The creator is restrained from removing evil from the world by the very nature and principles by which we humans were made. We will always be free to love or hate, but the future of a good and loving world that we long for can only be attained if we choose to love and reject hate. The next chapter explains the cause for our alienation from God. This account also holds the key to understanding the process of restoring men and women to their original purpose that has played out over the course of human history.